You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 276 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this episode, we're going to pick back up right where we left off at the end of the last show. As y'all recall, in May 1861 in Virginia, a public referendum had ratified the state's ordinance of secession, and a month later, in June 1861, delegates representing the western counties met at the Second Wheeling Convention and passed a measure creating the new reorganized government of Virginia. The delegates took their authority, in part, from a prior U.S. Supreme Court ruling in a case titled Luther v. Borden. In that ruling, the Supreme Court decided that the question of who represented a state was a political matter and was to be determined by Congress and the President. Only Congress had the authority to decide which elected members would represent a state in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. The president, though, had been delegated power by an act of Congress in 1795 to decide which government was the duly constituted government of a state when sending aid to a state threatened by insurrection. In other words, the president alone determined which parties represented the state and which are insurrectionists. Taking their cue from Luther versus Borden, the delegates at the Wheeling Convention concluded that since the authorities in Washington could determine which officials represented the state of Virginia, they, the delegates in Wheeling, would declare the existing government in Richmond null and void, appoint a new set of officials to represent the state, and then cross their fingers and hope Congress and the President would support their actions. Having declared the existing government in Richmond null and void and all state offices held by secessionists to be vacant, the Wheeling Convention appointed Francis Pierpont as governor and John Carlyle and Waitman Willie to fill the vacant Senate seats. The representatives to the House from the western part of the state retained their seats since they remained loyal to the Union. 
That meant that only the two newly appointed senators needed formal recognition in Washington. And once that was accomplished, then the new reorganized government of Virginia would become official. After some debate, the U.S. Senate, by a vote of 35 to 5, recognized the newly appointed senators of the reorganized government of Virginia as the legitimate representatives of that state. And then President Lincoln gave his de facto sanction to the actions of the Wheeling Convention by recognizing Francis Pierpont as governor of Virginia in all of his correspondence. For example, in a letter to Secretary of War Simon Cameron, dated September 6, 1861, Lincoln wrote, Will the War Department please consider the within request of Governor Pierpont? Well, this endorsement was written on a letter from Pierpont to Lincoln, requesting that Union troops occupy western Virginia and, quote, crush secession. Lincoln followed this with several communications addressed to Governor Pierpont. However, many of the delegates to the Wheeling Convention believed that the reorganized government was merely a temporary expedient rather than a permanent answer to their region's long-held grievances. They believed that unless further, more radical action were taken, then once the issues of secession from the Union and war between North and South were resolved, well, Western Virginia would simply revert to its previous unsatisfactory relationship with the state's Eastern establishment. To avoid that, it would be necessary to create a separate state out of Virginia's western counties. But if the right of an individual state to secede from the Union was debatable under the U.S. Constitution, the creation of a new state was not. You see, the conditions for admission to statehood are specifically laid out in Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution, which says, quote, New states may be admitted by the Congress into this Union, but no state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states, or parts of states, without the consent of the legislatures of the states as well as of the Congress. End quote. In other words, for a new state to be formed out of the western counties of Virginia, the Virginia legis legislature, as well as the U.S. Congress, would have to give their approval to the formation of the new state. On August 6, 1861, the members of the Second Wheeling Convention reconvened in that city to consider the question of statehood. Having already adopted the position that the reorganized government was the lawful legislature of the state of Virginia, the members of the convention now affirmed that they had the constitutional authority to sanction the formation of a new state from their territory. But while initial support for statehood had been fairly widespread in June, it had cooled somewhat by August. The principal point of contention was slavery. The anti-slavery delegates were wary of the slavery faction, who they felt wanted to use statehood to boost their political power. Western Virginia, although counting the fewest slaves per capita and fewest number of slave owners in the state, nonetheless was still a region where slavery existed 
and the influence of slave owners was strong. If admitted to the Union, Western Virginia would presumably enter as a slave state, but this prospect was unacceptable to some of the region's leaders, as well as some mem- some members of the U.S. Congress. The area under the jurisdiction of the reorganized government had a population of about three hundred and seventy-six thousand people, of whom just over eighteen thousand three hundred were slaves. Slaves, therefore, accounted for slightly less than five percent of the region's total population. But although slavery might appear to be a minor factor in both Western Virginia's population and economy, it was a major political issue. On one side were the slave owners, whose political influence was considerably disproportionate to their numbers. On the other side were the advocates of abolition, who believed emancipation was more important than statehood. Rather than entering the Union as a slave state, they preferred waiting out the war and taking their chances on a total federal victory. The fundamental issue to be decided by the August Convention, however, was not the status of slavery within the region, but whether or not to form a new state. A series of resolutions were introduced, some calling for adjournment, others for immediate statehood. Each resolution was defeated in turn. Finally, the delegates agreed to put the question of statehood to a public referendum. As part of the referendum, delegates would be elected to attend a constitutional convention should statehood receive a majority of votes. The question of slavery and emancipation was tabled. The referendum was scheduled for October twenty-fourth. The Constitutional Convention was scheduled to meet four weeks later, on November twenty-sixth. Should the question favoring statehood pass? The October vote was overwhelmingly in favor of statehood, eighteen thousand four hundred and eight to seven hundred and eighty-one. Those figures require some explanation, though, since they only represent a third—well, thirty-six percent—of the number cast in those same counties during the secession referendum. The low turnout reflected several factors. First, in a lot of counties, a great many of the men were by now serving in one army or the other. Then, in certain counties, both Confederate sympathizers. And pro-unionist abolitionists simply refused to vote. The Confederate sympathizers no doubt stayed home, since a loyalty oath to the Union was required to vote. Federal troops were stationed in certain counties, supposedly to ensure a free vote and suppress anti-statehood intimidation. The fact that federal soldiers were present in the two counties where the largest number of votes against statehood were cast seems to support the notion that the election was freely held, since the troops could easily have suppressed the votes in those two counties. Of course, it's not possible to tell what the vote would have been without the presence of the soldiers. At any rate, the low turnout didn't deter the advocates of statehood from moving ahead. The referendum, having supported statehood, 
A constitutional convention was called for November 26th in Wheeling. The first order of business was the selection of a name for the new state. Some of the names considered were Kanawha, New Virginia, Western Virginia, Allegheny, and Augusta, but the delegates finally settled on West Virginia. Of the 50 counties that would make up the new state, 17 had voted for the secession ordinance back in May and now reported no election results in the referendum on statehood. These counties did have delegates at the convention, but it seems doubtful that they represented the majority view of most citizens of the secession counties. However, at least four of these delegates were strongly opposed to division of the state and pleaded their case vehemently, but they were outvoted in the end. In fixing the final boundary of the new state, 44 counties were included, quote-unquote, unconditionally, while a further seven were to be included if the voters in those counties ratified the new state constitution. Only one did not and it therefore remained part of Virginia. The remaining six were included with the 44 unconditional counties, bringing the final total to 50. After settling the issues of the new state's boundary and legislative apportionment, the delegates turned their attention to the elephant in the room, the divisive issue of slavery. After lively debate, a compromise resolution was adopted which barred, quote, persons of color, slave or free, end quote, from entering the state for permanent residence. This would prevent the importation of new slaves, but the delegates chose to remain silent on what to do about existing slaves, thus sidestepping the issue entirely. This was only a temporary band-aid, though since such silence would prove unacceptable when the statehood bill finally made its way to Congress. In any case, with agreement having been reached on a state constitution, a public referendum was held on its adoption. On April 3, 1862, the new constitution passed overwhelmingly with a vote of 82,862 in favor 514 against. Concerned over congressional reaction to the new Constitution's silence on slavery, 20 of the counties held an additional non-binding referendum on the question of gradual emancipation. The vote in favor of this measure in these counties was almost as great as that in support of the Constitution. This vote in favor of gradual emancipation was intended as a signal to the U.S. Congress that the majority of the people in West Virginia favored some form of emancipation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. With the results of the constitutional referendum and the reorganized government's approval in hand, one of the two U.S. senators representing the reorganized government of Virginia, Waitman Willie, introduced a bill into the Senate on May 29, 1862, calling for statehood for West Virginia. The bill immediately ran into opposition from both moderate Republicans and abolitionists. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts offered an amendment calling for the complete abolition of slavery as a requirement for statehood. Benjamin Wade of Ohio offered a compromise amendment calling for gradual emancipation. Wade's amendment provided that any slave under 21 years of age on July 4, 1863, would become free on their 21st birthday. A new complication arose when the reorganized government's second senator, John Carlyle, changed his position. Previously a supporter of statehood, he now insisted that the entire process which had brought everyone to this point ought to be redone. The long and the short of it is that Carlyle's real objection was the possibility that gradual emancipation might be, quote, unquote, dictated by Congress. Carlyle and others back in West Virginia who aligned themselves with him wanted this issue of emancipation to be a state issue, not a measure enforced by the U.S. Congress. Carlyle, it seems, hated abolitionists more than he desired statehood. And so advocates of statehood back home quickly labeled Carlyle a traitor to their cause, while in Washington, his challenge to the legitimacy of the process that had led to the Constitutional Convention caused several senators to rethink their support for West Virginia's statehood. A stalemate seemed inevitable until Willie introduced an amendment specifying that those slaves under the age of 10 on July 4, 1863, would become free at 21, while slaves between the ages of 10 and 21 would become free at age 25. It was this gradual emancipation amendment that was finally adopted by the Senate with the stipulation that the already approved state constitution be amended accordingly. And so Carlyle lost his bid to take the issue of emancipation out of Congress's hands, and the Senate bill was sent to the House of Representatives. Arriving in the House of Representatives, the West Virginia Statehood Bill was referred to committee on June 3, 1862, but didn't come to the floor of the House for debate and a vote until December 9th, six months after being introduced. Here, it ran into trouble again, not because of its emancipation provisions, or lack thereof, 
but because of the question of whether the reorganized government in Wheeling was legally competent under the U.S. Constitution to approve a division of the state of Virginia. After a day of debate, a vote was called for on December 10th, and when the dust finally had settled, the House passed the Senate bill by a vote of 96 to 55. Reflecting the thoughts of several members of the House who voted in favor of the bill, Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania said, quote, We know that it is unconstitutional, but it is necessary. End quote. Yikes, that's quite a quote. Okay, well, with the passage of the bill by both houses of Congress, statehood now seemed assured. But one last hurdle remained. President Lincoln had to sign the bill into law. Observers took note that the number of votes in favor of the bill weren't enough to override a presidential veto should Lincoln choose not to sign it. But supporters of the bill had every reason to be optimistic. After all, Lincoln had recognized Pierpont as governor and given encouragement to the reorganized government as it pursued statehood. Yet by December 23rd, Lincoln still hadn't signed the bill. The president seemed to harbor private concerns over the bill's constitutionality. On the 23rd, Lincoln asked each member of his cabinet to provide him with their written comments on both the legality and military expediency of West Virginia statehood. The cabinet split equally on the issue, with three advocating statehood and three against. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, and Attorney General Edward Bates all opposed admitting the new state into the Union. Bates was strongest in his opposition. He seemed to disapprove of much of what Lincoln was doing, though, and the question of splitting apart Virginia was no exception. Bates thought the whole thing was unconstitutional, although his arguments seemed more emotional than legal. You see, he'd been born and raised in Virginia, and strongly opposed any division of the Old Dominion. Supporting the admission of West Virginia were Secretary of State William Seward, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase. Significantly, none of the cabinet members in their responses to Lincoln specifically addressed the question of slavery, even though West Virginia was to be admitted to the Union as a slave state. Among the strongest arguments against admission was the fact only 19,000 Virginians voted in the referendum on statehood. These votes were all cast in the western counties, while the rest of the state's electorate ignored the proceedings. While 19,000 represented 36% of the total votes cast in the western counties during the secession referendum in May 1861, it represented a little over 10% of the 166,000 statewide total for the May vote. In other words, 166,000 voters throughout the rest of Virginia did not participate in the referendum on statehood. This begged the question, do 19,000 voters out of 185,000 have the right to decide whether a state is split apart? 
And is the vote of a fraction of the qualified electorate valid in electing a new, reorganized state government to represent the whole? In a message accompanying his signing of the bill, Abraham Lincoln made clear that he thought the answer to those questions was yes. In fact, Lincoln's acceptance of the West Virginia election results is consistent with his Amnesty and Reconstruction Proclamation of December 1863, which came to be known as the 10% Plan. Lincoln's 10% Plan is essential to understanding his vision for Reconstruction. This plan offered amnesty to all Confederates for their secessionist activities including their right to retain all of their property, exclusive of slaves, upon their taking of an oath of allegiance. When the number of oath-takers equaled 10% of the total number of voters in that state for the 1860 presidential election, then those loyal individuals could organize a new state government and apply for full restoration to the Union. The loyal voters of Western Virginia, therefore, met Lincoln's 10% requirement. It seems clear that Lincoln had favored statehood all along. On December 31st, he answered critics of the bill by stating, quote, It is said that the admission of West Virginia is secession and is tolerated only because it is our secession. Well, if we call it by that name, there is still difference enough between secession against the Constitution and secession in favor of the Constitution. One of Attorney General Bates' objections had been that approval would set a bad precedent, but Lincoln wrote that, quote, The division of a state is dreaded as a precedent, but a measure made, made expedient by war is no precedent for times of peace, end quote. The same day Lincoln released the bill creating West Virginia, New Year's Day, 1863, he also signed his Emancipation Proclamation as an executive order under the authority of the war powers granted the president. Lincoln went forward with both measures as expedient, while downplaying the constitutional objections raised against them, against them. In the end, the paramount concern of the ever-pragmatic Lincoln was what was necessary to sustain the Union through this unprecedented crisis, rather than constitutional niceties. Statehood for West Virginia was still in the future, however, since the bill required the delegates to reconvene and amend the state's constitution to reflect Congress's requirement for gradual emancipation. And so, on February 12, 1863, the delegates met, and after a small amount of debate, agreed to the Emancipation Clause without any reference to the contentious question of compensation. A public referendum on the amendment was held on March 26th, and the amendment passed overwhelmingly by a vote of 28,450 to 570. This time, fully 55% of the number of voters who participated in the May 1861 secession vote turned out. The long and arduous struggle of the western counties was finally over. The results of the election were certified as official 
and presented to Abraham Lincoln on April 20th. Lincoln issued a proclamation setting June 20th, 1863, as the date West Virginia would officially join the Union as the 35th state. She was the first state to be admitted to the Union since the Civil War had begun and entered as a slave state, all with the approval of Congress and the blessing of the President. On February 3, 1865, the West Virginia State Legislature abolished slavery. It set up a system of free public schools without regard to race. But a later constitution, adopted after former Confederates regained the right to vote and hold office, segregated schools. The Supreme Court turned back Virginia's post-war attempts to reclaim its lost territory, but debate about the legitimacy of the state's creation has never ended. While opponents of West Virginia statehood claim the act was unconstitutional, the fact remains that it was a war measure brought about by secession and the unprecedented threat to the Union. Few events during the Civil War were as paradoxical or convoluted as the birth of the state of West Virginia. But the citizens of the new state summed up their opinion of the matter with the words on their state seal, Montani, Semper, Liberi. Mountaineers are always free. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is A House Divided, a study of statehood politics and the Copperhead Movement in West Virginia by Richard Orr Curry. This is an oldie but a goodie, and if politics is your thing, then this book is right up your alley. It gets into the nitty-gritty of everything we've talked about in these last two episodes. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in one handy list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 85, which was part two of our look at Stoneman's Raid during the Chancellorsville campaign. You can find out about joining the Strawfoot Brigade and find all of the membership episodes and stuff over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Civil War Podcast. Thanks to everyone who has already made the switch from the website and signed up on Patreon. And also thank you to you first-timers who have just signed on the last two weeks since we've made the change. It's your support that's going to keep the podcast moving forward into the future. And then before we sign off, we wanted to let you know that there won't be a new show next weekend. Not only will it be Easter, but we'll also be taking some time next weekend to celebrate our 20th anniversary. Although our anniversary gift to ourselves is actually our visit to Gettysburg in June. Have we mentioned we're going to Gettysburg in June? Yes, I think we have. Hmm. Okay. So thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you join us again next time when we'll be heading out west to Mississippi to start the Vicksburg story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.